is, uh, some of you will be relieved to know that this is the final sermon on Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Let's just read the words one more time for old time's sake, shall we? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself his savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Father, we ask that you would make your book live for us this morning, and that you would show us yourself in your word, and that you would show us ourselves in your word, and you would close that gap this morning between what we are and what we ought to be. For it's only by the power of your word animated by your spirit that anything worth doing is done in the spiritual realm. And we aren't in control of that. You've got to move. You've got to convince people of their errors. You've got to convince people of their sin. You've got to convince people to be encouraged upwards and to greater heights of obedience. It all comes from you. And so we look to you. And we say, Master, speak, thy servant heareth, waiting on thy gracious word. Amen. Well, just by way of quick review, uh, in these in these, uh, this series of sermons, I, I've sought to establish that God has instituted certain relationships of unequal authority, or what we might call hierarchy, in human society. And some examples of places where we see that are the civil authorities, the magistrate, the, the emperor. And so you have Paul telling the Romans to honor the emperor, even though the emperor was Caesar Nero, they were to obey all of his lawful commands. Uh, God, God sets up, um, uh, as I said, civil authorities, magistrates, and kings who have authority over citizens, and God does this, and when you disobey them, you disobey him, he says. Uh, we have in the military, superior ranking military leaders who have authority over those of inferior ranks. And Jesus didn't try and undo that when the centurion came to him, did he? And when the Roman soldiers uh, came to John the Baptist, or the, rather the Jewish soldiers came to John the Baptist and asked what they should do, he didn't say, well, you know, stop being a soldier, stop obeying your authorities. He let them have that role, and that was okay. Uh, parents have authority over their children. 
something which is increasingly contested in our day and, and will be more contested going forward. And pastors and ruling elders have authority over the flocks that they've been set over, and husbands have authority over their wives. And that's just how God set things up. Next, uh, we noted that the Bible clearly teaches that human beings are fundamentally equal in Christ Jesus. And so these relationships of authority and submission take place against a backdrop of a fundamental equality. Uh, Paul says, in Christ, there is no Jew nor Greek, no male nor female, no slave nor free. And this was quite revolutionary when Paul wrote it, because, for instance, Aristotle, who was very influential in the ancient world, wrote that some men were slaves and other men were masters precisely because that's how nature sorts humanity out. Nature sorts humanity out in such a way that the masters are genuinely superior human beings to the slaves. And that's why they ended up as masters, because they're better people. And the slaves ended up as slaves because they were not as good a people. And they were worth less than a master. And that was, the, that was the widespread understanding in the ancient world. And here comes Paul, and he says, no, 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 no. In Christ, all of those things are erased, and they aren't, they're shown to be completely false. They're shown to be worldly constructs for pride and power and things like that. And this is not how it is amongst the people of God. Paul says, you are not to run your common life on Aristotle's principles, but on Christ's principles. So why did God set this whole equality and hierarchy thing up? Why did he create equal people and then put them in roles that are unequal? Well, he did that because we are made in his image, and that's how God runs his own Trinitarian life. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal, and yet the Son submits to the Father, and the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit, and they tell him what to say, and he's happy to be told what to say. He doesn't want to do his own will. He wants to do the will of those who sent him. And next we saw that these things were true and were given even in the pristine created order before the fall of man. Indeed, the thing that, that marks Satan out and causes his fall is this rebellious attitude that arises from pride uh, and, a, and a desire to not submit to lawful authority. And that, in Satan's case, it was God. He didn't want to submit to God. And Satan's sons and daughters, to this day, in this age, are known by their rebellious attitude, which arises out of pride against lawful authority. And, and that attitude has made its way in different ways into men and women after the fall. The man is tempted to defy God's role for him, either by, coming, by becoming a tyrant, and I heard, I heard this week about a woman who whose husband was uh, a tyrant and was telling her what color nail polish to wear even, and things like that, was micromanaging her life. That is absolutely inappropriate and silly, and I don't know what colors go best on my wife's fingernails anyway. I let her do that. That's, you know, she's good at that kind of stuff, and I'm not. This is silly. Why would a guy do that? And so that's one temptation. But an equal and opposite temptation is to abdicate leadership, just to be lazy. To say, well, she wants to run everything anyway, so I'll just let her do it, and I'll check out. I'll sit on the couch and watch football or do whatever it is I'm going to do. 
It made its way into the life of the woman in that she is tempted to defy her God-given role by trying to set the agenda and dominate her husband and usurp his role. You will remember that there's that little phrase in Genesis 3.15, when God curses Eve, he says, your desire will be for your husband, but he must rule over you. And that word desire is used one chapter later when God is talking to Cain and he's about to kill Abel and God says, behold, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. It's the same concept. It's the same word. So that's, that's how Eve works out her part of the fallen world. When we come to Christ and when we are born again, God both empowers us and commands us to put our relationships as husbands and wives back to the way that God designed for them to be. And we find out that even in secular psychology, they're discovering some amazing things about male and female, which confirm the scriptures. And one of those things is that while both men and women need both love and respect, men need an emphasis on respect and a strong emphasis on respect, and women need a strong emphasis on love. And that's why God, through the pen of Paul, commands that husbands love their wives, because that's what she most needs, and at the same time commands wives respect their husbands. Now, that's what the Bible says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Wives, see to it that you respect your husbands. So God designed the marital relationship so that we each, with his help, meet the other person's deepest needs. And then, if that happens, even in an imperfect way, which it will be, right? I mean, we're human, we fail, we're learning. But if that begins to happen in a regular fashion, what we discover is that we find ourselves able to dwell together happily and to serve God together as husband and wife, and we are also enabled to serve as witnesses of the goodness of a life lived together in the kingdom of God, and we become also living parables of the goodness of Christ to his church. Every Christian marriage ought to be one in which an unbeliever could look at that marriage and say, I see how that man treats his wife. That's how Christ treats his people. I think I'd like to be one of his people. Well, last week I, I gave a concrete list, a list rather of concrete ways that a wife, or uh, that a husband can um, can love his wife. And I printed that list out and I put it in the bulletin and uh, you can have that, ladies, and you can put it on the refrigerator and then uh, when things are not going the way they need to go, you can just look at him and say, number 13. And, uh, and he'll go and check number 13 and go, okay, all right. So next week I'm gonna give this list I'm giving today. I didn't wanna steal my own thunder, but next week I'm gonna give that list to the guys and he can put it up next to yours and you can say, uh, husbands, you can say, hey, sweetheart, number three, please, number three. All right, so the, the shorthand communication, avoid a fight, right? Um, so I've got a list this week of concrete ways that a wife can demonstrate a godly respect for her husband. And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna dive into it in the, in the interest of brevity. Number one, communicate to him that you want the scriptures to be fulfilled in your marriage and that you want him to be the spiritual head of your home. 
and that you're going to allow him to lead. In other words, you're not going to fight him for it. And if you find yourself fighting him for it, you're going to stop once you realize what you're doing and go, okay, I need to, I need to stop. I need to change course. Don't fight him for leadership. There's a lot of women out there, a lot of Christian women, who basically say, I will let my husband lead me wherever I already wanted to go. Or they'll say things like, well, he's the head, but I'm the neck, and the neck turns the head and tells it where to, where to look. No, we're not, this is not a, a covert control method, all right? You're gonna, if, if, if you're going to have a, a true situation of leadership, you're not always going to agree. He's going to see things differently. And, and those are the times, ladies, when you're really discovering what it is that you believe. Do you trust Christ? And are you willing to do what he says to do? Or are you going to try and rip control out of his hands and assert your own will? Second of all, allow him time to learn how to lead. Allow him time to learn how to lead. He has probably had almost no training. He has probably known no examples of men who are doing it right. He is going to make mistakes while he tries to figure this out. He's going to fumble around, and, and it's going to discourage him if he looks up and sees a look of frustration or contempt or disapproval uh, on, on your face. And, uh, and it's going to just take the heart right out of him. You wouldn't do that to anybody else that was learning something. If your child was learning to walk, you don't stand there and go, well, you fell over, you idiot. Why don't you just lay there? We'll just walk for you. No, you're like, come on, get up, come on. Do it. You're encouraging people who learn. Well, he's learning. And, and learning means making mistakes. Now, we want him to learn from his mistakes, but uh, he's learning. So let him learn. Let him learn. Number three, don't speak to him disrespectfully or contemptuously, even in anger. And husbands, I would say the same for you. Don't speak to your wife disrespectfully or contemptuously, even in anger. Contempt communicates something to him that you're going to have a very hard time undoing. It, you, you just are. Because here's what happens. Our world is full of so much insincere flattery and praise that especially as a guy, we're conditioned to just disregard that. As we just know up front, they're being nice, but it's not true. Right? It's a polite lie. And they're saying all these things about us most of the time. But when somebody speaks to you contemptuously, you go, that's really what it, what's in their heart. Have you ever had a situation where you said something and you saw the reaction on another person's face and you said, oh, I didn't mean to say that, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that, I'm sorry. Well, what you're really saying is, I didn't mean for you to know that's how I thought about you. And that other person who's on the receiving end of that instantly recognizes that is your true heart. And if you speak to your husband in a contemptuous way, that, he's going to look at that and go, that's really what's in her heart for me. And you're not going to be able to undo that very easily at all. Guys will remember things their wives have said to them 30, 40, 50 years later and still be wounded by them or angry about them. It's just how it is. So don't do that. By way of analogy, think of what damage it would do to you and to your marriage if he spoke to you with words of hatred 
words of hatred would not cause you to do what he wanted you to do, they'd have the opposite effect. You'd dig in your heels. Well, words of disrespect and contempt are going to have the opposite effect of what you want on your husband. They will not cause him to work harder on his weaknesses or his problems. It will actually make it impossible for him both to do what you want and to retain his dignity as a man. And no man who is worth having will fall all over himself to please someone who doesn't respect him. At some point he'll say, I can't, I, I'm not going to do what this person wants me to do because it is an assault on my dignity to do what they want me to do. And so you put yourself in a situation where you make it even harder to get your concerns dealt with. So don't do that. Number four, when you do need to offer feedback to him, and it's okay to offer feedback to him, talk about a specific behavior rather than his character. In other words, call him upwards. Say, this thing that you did or didn't do is unworthy of who you are and who you want to be. So why don't you close that gap and rise upwards? Don't beat him down. Don't say, you always do this and, and, and make him feel like a child being scolded by his mother. Call him upward, don't beat him down. Number five. Make him a priority in your life without him having to ask you to do so. Ladies, your relationship with your husband is second only to your relationship to Almighty God. And it will outlast the active parenting of your children. It should anyway. Because they will grow up and they will leave the home and they will become husbands and wives themselves and you will still have him. He is more important. He's more important than your career. He's more important than your friends. He's more important than your hobbies. He's, he's more important uh, than, than uh, all these other things that, that you put on the front burner and leave him on the back burner. Men, the same goes for you. God needs to be first and your wife second and then all other concerns. But women, your special temptation is to be too wrapped up in your children, especially today in an era of helicopter parenting. And if you ignore him for 18, 20, 25 years while you are overly engrossed in your children's lives, you will look up one day when you are empty nesters and find that he has constructed a whole life without you and that he's not particularly interested in changing it just because now you're bored and you want something else to do. More and more marriages are imploding after 20 or 30 years together, and here's why. The woman puts the husband on the back burner for a couple of decades while she pursues her goals. And he knows he's put on the back burner. He doesn't feel respected. He doesn't feel appreciated. And so he doesn't feel any compulsion to come towards her and have emotional intimacy with her. And, and so he doesn't do that. And then uh, because he feels ignored and he feels taken advantage of. And then she doesn't feel loved. And so she decides, well, I'm going to use the resources that he brings to the family to get my project of raising the kids completed. And then I'm going to walk out on him. And that's what's happening. It's happening 
Right now, women initiate, I believe it's 83% of all divorces at this point. I might have that wrong. It might be just a little bit lower, but it's way over 50%. And, and, and it's, this is a phenomenon that psychologists have recognized and have labeled as the walkaway woman. And it's interesting to read the literature on this because they always just blame the husband. It's his fault. You know, he didn't cultivate the intimacy that she needed, and so she walks away after she's accomplished her purpose. And they're very, they're very upfront about, you know, she's just using him in this marriage to get done what she wants to get done, and then she's done with it. She's checked out a long time ago. And, uh, and they blame the, the guy. And here's the problem. Behind the guy is often a woman's behavior that is not paying any attention to him for a long time. Number six, as a corollary to that, accept his invitations to sex as often as possible. And maybe make a few invitations of your own every once in a while. Women want emotional intimacy as a precursor to sex, but men are just the opposite. For a man, emotional intimacy comes after sex. So guys, you'll have more sex if you cultivate emotional intimacy with your wife, but ladies, you will get more emotional intimacy with your husbands if you have sex with them. Don't make a liar out of me, guys, by, by, uh, by rolling over and going to sleep after. Spend some time with her, all right? Number seven, don't presume to be able to control his time, his labor, and his money and how they're disposed of. Don't volunteer him for stuff. Don't unilaterally decide that you would like to begin some project that you want his help on, and uh, God help him if he says, no, I'm not interested in helping you with that project. But you never consulted him in advance. You just told him what was going to happen next. Um, you want to start a project? Go ahead. Just make sure that you can do it all, or ask him to help you first. It's your choice but he works for God, and he doesn't work for you. He will work for you in the context of working for God, but you shouldn't just say, this is how it's going to be, dear, and here's what you're going to do, without at least consulting him. You don't like being treated that way. Why would he? Number eight, don't run off all of his friends because you don't approve of them. Number nine, work to stay aware of his positive qualities. Work to stay aware of his positive qualities. The, the low-grade, persistent anxiety that a lot of women experience for much of their lives, when it is coupled with that psychological phenomenon I mentioned a few weeks ago called the insatiability of the female, that has a lot of profound implications for marriage. And one of those is that women tend to be hyper-focused on what they think is wrong to the exclusion of other things. One woman I know called it tunnel vision. She says, I get tunnel vision. All I see is what's wrong. And so you see something that you think is wrong and you think he ought to fix it and you bring your complaint or your criticism to your husband and, and you think it's really, really, really important that this issue gets solved and, and gets solved quickly or the relationship for you is out of balance and is ultimately threatened. And so the guy says, okay, and he addresses the situation, he changes the behavior, whatever, he solves the problem, and when he's done, he thinks, well, that'll make her happy, and you are for a little bit, 
But then what happens? Then you aren't, because you go on to the next thing that you think needs to be addressed, and you get your tunnel vision again, and you say, now, now handle this, and he does it, and then you go, okay, and then you go to the next thing, now handle this. And at some point, he's gonna say, look, I'm batting, I'm hitting the ball here 90% of the time, maybe, and all I hear from you is about the things you think are wrong. You're, you're focused all the time on the things you think are wrong. They're wrong with me, or they're, I'm doing something wrong, or something like that. Nobody's perfect. Can you just accept that you got to, I'm, I'm batting 90% here? And the woman has a hard time with that. Why can't you be happy with me like I am, he says. Ladies, if he treated you that way, you would crumble into a ball of nerves. And if he does treat you that way, he shouldn't. And guys, you should cut it out. Dr. Emerson Egrich says he regularly gets emails from wives who are hyper-focused on what they believe are their husband's deficiencies. And they're very upset. And to the, they're coming him to the point where they're ready to, to the, the marriage is threatened. And he says, he says well, do, do this for me first. He says, go make a list of 15 things that your husband does well or that are his positive qualities or that are things that you admire about him. Make that list, think of 15 things, and then come back and talk to me. And over and over again, he says, the woman comes back and says, thank you so much for making me do that exercise, because I fell in love with my husband all over again while I was making that list. But if all you focus on is what's wrong, that's all he's going to hear, and that's going to take the heart right out of your marriage. These next three are also related to that issue of anxiety plus instability. Number 10, part of headship and part of leadership is saying no sometimes. Wives, when the husband is the spiritual head of the family, that does not mean that you will let him lead you wherever you already wanted to go. Someday and in some way, for some reason, he's going to say no to you. Let his no be no. Do not relentlessly fling yourself against his no until you pummel him into a yes. The Bible is very, very aware of this feminine tendency. In Judges chapters 13 through 16, we're introduced to a guy named Samson. And uh, twice within the space of two chapters, Samson falls in love with a woman and let's see your number, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. There it is, Judges chapter 14. He falls in love with a woman, and she wants something, and he says no. And let's look, Judges 14, uh, verses 16 and 17. We set the context here. Uh, she wants something, and he says no. And it says in verse 16, and Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me, you don't love me, you've put a riddle to my people and you've not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I've not told my mother or my father either, shall I tell it to you? But she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. And then she told the riddle to the people. And then again in chapter 16, I believe it is, chapter 16, verses 
15 through 17. This is the famous Delilah, Samson and Delilah. And she's pressing him to know the secret of his strength so that, so that his enemies can come in and kill him. And for some reason, he loves this girl. And uh, in verse 15, and she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times. You have not told me where your great strength lies. And she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him. His soul was vexed to death. And he told her all of his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And if you know the story, that's exactly what happened. In Proverbs 19.13, it says that a, a, a wife's quarreling is like a continual dripping of rain. And that's how very often in Proverbs 27, 15 says much the same thing. There's a reason when Jesus wanted to give a parable about persistence in prayer, he used a story about a widow going to a judge who finally gave her what she wanted because he knew that if he didn't, she would wear him out with her continual coming. Wives, not everything you want is a good thing. And it is not a tragedy if you don't get your own way. And you need to stop after asking for what you want a time or two and let no be no. If you want to wear somebody down and try and get what you want from them, then go to God relentlessly in prayer instead of trying to get your husband to give you your way. It's just wrong. And you can say, well, I'm just talking. You know, I'm just bringing it up again. And it, it, but everybody knows what's really going on. You are trying to wear down the stone with the continual dripping of water. I want you to consider a very concrete example from our own common life. How many of the families that have departed from this church in the last two years or so left because the husband said, you know, as spiritual head, I believe that the following errors are being taught in this church, and I've tried to rectify those errors, and I have failed. Therefore, we're going to depart this body for another church, and in so doing, we are not breaking our vows of membership. How many have, have done that? How, how many of the people that have left that you know, how many was that their situation where the husband said, doctrine is wrong and we need to go? Zero. And how many have left because of the wife's emotional or relational issues? Nearly all of them, as near as I can tell. So you will break a vow to Almighty God based on your feelings and whether you feel like keeping it or not. Really? I hope that's not how you treat your other vows. Because if that is, then you're in a lot of trouble. In those circumstances, the husband should have said, no, we're not going anywhere. And the wife should have accepted it and accepted it with a happy heart. And then together, they should have used their spiritual gifts to repair any genuine deficiencies that there are in our fellowship. And there are many. I'm aware of most of them. We need people that will step in and say, I want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. She who has ears to hear, let her hear.
Number 11, recognize that he is not really the root cause of your fears and anxieties. Not really. He's the occasion for many of them, but he's not the cause. The problem is deeper. And even if he fixed everything, it wouldn't make your anxieties go away for very long. The problem is deeper. And that's why um, no human being can really relieve you of those things. That's why 1 Peter 3.6 counsels a wife in particular not to be ruled by fear, but rather to cultivate a gentle and a quiet spirit, which God loves. He says, this is precious in my sight. And then Peter says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Your husband is dressed up like Christ in your marriage. He's playing a role. It's a Christ role, and you're dressed up like the church, but he is not God. He cannot do for you what only God can do, and you must learn to cast all of your anxieties and all of your burdens upon God rather than growing angry at your husband because he can't make them go away. Number 12, cultivate contentment. Cultivate contentment. Uh, restrain dissatisfaction in your heart. Be content with your house. Be content with your income. Be content with the man you chose to marry. The Bible says that godliness with contentment is great gain. That's 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. A life of contentment is the natural outgrowth of trusting God. There is a saying, if mama ain't happy, what's the, how do we finish it, guys? Ain't nobody happy, right? What, the inverse is also true. Very often, it's the case that the wife sets the relational and the emotional tone in the home. And a woman who is fundamentally at rest in the Lord and content with her life will transmit that to her whole family. Just in the same way that a woman who is anxious and angry and unhappy, and it will, will, she will transmit that to her whole family. Her husband will be at ease. Her children will be secure and they will be calm. We transmit anxiety to one another. But we can also transmit peace to one another. And if your attitude is fundamentally one of peace and contentment, and you look at the things that you think are wrong or, or are wrong, it's not just your opinion, and you say, well, I've tried to rectify that and I can't do anything about it, so I'm going to leave that with the Lord and I'm going to be at peace and I'm going to pray. If you can do that, your home will be a place of peace. What do you want to transmit? Anxiety and anger or peace? In uh, Dallas Willard's book, Renovation of the Heart, there's a wonderful quote. And Dallas writes this. Today there is about a 50% divorce rate in America, and the rate is not much lower for professing Christians. But the problem is not divorce, though divorce generates a set of problems all of its own. The problem is that people don't know how to be married. They don't actually get married in many cases, though they go through a legal and possibly a religious ceremony. They are, sad to say, incapable of marriage. The kind of constant mutual blessing that can make two people in conjugal relation literally one whole person. 
It is not their fault. In their world, how could they know? Who would teach them? This is the soul-searing fact at the heart of our modern sadness. To be married is to give oneself to another person in the most intimate and inclusive of human relationships, to support him or her for good in every way possible, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, of course, but in every conceivable dimension of his or her being. Nothing ever given to humanity more adequately portrays what marriage is than the traditional service, the form of solemnization of matrimony in the old book of common prayer of the Church of England. Just consider some of its wording. Anyone who wishes to really understand the situation with divorce and family breakup should begin with a careful study of the giving of oneself and the receiving of another that is manifested in the vows of this traditional service. I blank take thee blank to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Insight into the meaning of the vows will clearly bring out why the ideal intent of marriage is one man, one woman for life. The mutual submission to each other in the awe of the Lord, which is the vision of marriage in Christ, eliminates both assault and withdrawal from this most basic of human relationships. And thereby it provides the matrix or womb from which in God's plan, whole human beings can emerge to form whole human communities under God. Listen, ladies, if you want your children to flourish, if you want your children to prosper, if you want your children to grow up and be godly, then be a wife in the way that Paul commands in 1 Corinthians 5. Give yourself to your husband in this way. Husbands, give yourself to your wives in this way and you will create a place from which they can grow in the things of God which they've seen demonstrated before them day in and day out for 18 years and they will go out and they will marry somebody who is good for them and they will walk with God now this is not infallible there will be Esau's But God says, I want to be your God and the God of your children after you. And that if you train up a child in the way that they should go, when they are old, they will not depart from it. So much of that training is not specifically teaching them facts. It's modeling for them how to be. So that they learn very well. I know what a father is. I know what a wife is. And that's who I'm going to be. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, for you are my rock and my redeemer.